This is Meditations for Misfits, and I'm Fred Gruy. Welcome. In this week's podcast, we offer a reflection on the story, the parable, of the ten bridesmaids, as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. And we consider what it might mean to heed Jesus' exhortation to prepare for our future. I really appreciate the way uh, Jim brought the text to us this morning by giving us a, a, a fuller context of where this story lies. So G, as Jim related to us, Jesus was aware that in several days he was going to die. And so you get the impression this is an important story. It's sort of like when someone knows the end is near, you want to give the really, really important stuff as best you can. And that is the context of this parable. Now, this summer, uh, we spent 13, 14 weeks looking at different parables of Jesus. I avoided this one like the plague because it's just hard. Okay. But as things unfold, our lectionary that uh, Protestant and Catholic churches follow uh, to give us readings for each Sunday, this came up in the lectionary, and so I couldn't hide from it. And so I'll try and offer you some, some thoughts on this uh, story. And part of my struggle with this is, look, this story and this particular text, this section of Matthew's gospel, has been used by preachers, English-speaking preachers predominantly, for the last several hundred years to just scare people and to threaten them with hell and uh, so I'm trying to listen afresh to these words to see what Jesus might have really had in mind and not uh, what in the last several hundred years some certain preachers who forcefully have used these words to, uh, to address uh, our future. So one of the, a couple of interpretive keys is, as we begin to look at this story that are helpful. One is, there's, there's a big word theologians use called apocalyptic. Doesn't that sound, oh, that sounds awful. It sounds like a disease, doesn't it? Oh, I'm suffering from the apocalyptic. Well, apocalyptic is just a big word that's code language for the end of times. End things is what it means. And for the last several hundred years, particularly Protestant preachers, have used that to mean the end of the world as we know it. But recent research, particularly uh, spearheaded by a man named N.T. Wright, who is a genius, taught at Oxford, Notre Dame, Harvard, and Yale, so, you know, he's a bright guy. He has really spearheaded the idea that Jesus, very much in line with the prophetic Jewish lineage of which Jesus was, was not talking about the end of time or the end of world when he speaks as he does in this story, but about the soon-to-be destruction of his nation Israel by the Romans in 66 AD. Jesus, being very prescient, could see that the way the Jewish people were behaving under Roman rule, if we keep this up, the Romans are going to get fed up with us and come and wipe us out. 
So you better change your ways or we're doomed. Nobody listened. And in 66 AD, the Romans did under Vespasian come and wipe out the city of Jerusalem and pretty much destroy the whole Jewish nation. And that that's what Jesus foresaw and was warning his hearers about. Not the end of the world as, as has often been taken to be the meaning behind some of these words. So that's one thing to help us understand this a little better. Another is that as the story begins, everybody was invited. There are 10 bridesmaids that are invited to the wedding. Nobody's left out. Everybody's in. And as the story unfolds, five of the bridesmaids turn out to be what Jesus calls wise, and five become what are called foolish. And the point of demarcation between being wise and foolish in the context of the story is the wise ones prepared for every eventuality in the future, and the foolish ones did not prepare. The foolish ones just were living life and made no preparations for what might go wrong. So in the context of the story, the wise ones were preparing for eventualities, and the foolish ones were not. And so the question is, how did they plan for the future? And that's, I think, the point, the main point of the story Jesus is trying to tell us is plan for the future. Prepare for what is going to happen because what is going to happen may not be good, may not be nice. So what are you doing to make preparations for that? The five foolish maidens just figured, well, we're already in. We've been invited. Nothing to worry about. We're just going to go live life, do what we want because we're already in. And the five wise ones made preparations. Well, things could go wrong. What, what are we going to do? And I think that's a great encouragement. And as Jim told us, this is a man who is about to be killed. And so he wants to tell his followers, his friends, prepare because things may not go as smoothly or as easily as we would all like. And so what this boils down to or, or comes to for me in a, in a variety of ways is really what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, a wise follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? And in our culture, the way it's worked over the last several hundred years, we define a Christian as someone who believes the right things. And whatever church you go to has a set of beliefs, and if you believe like that, then you're a good Christian. And I will suggest that's not what Jesus had in mind at all. Whether we believe Jesus is divine, second person of the Trinity, took on human form and became a man, that if you believe that, then you're really a Christian. I don't think that's what Jesus was thinking or teaching. For Jesus, to be a Christian seems to be, are we living the way he told us to live. If we're not living the way he said to live, then it doesn't matter what we believe. We're not Christians. I like to say going to church or coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Okay? 
To be a Christian is one who follows in the teachings and living life the way Jesus taught us to live. And so I think we need to reevaluate the litmus test by what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And in case you just think I'm making this up, ah, let me read you some of the words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the realm of God, but the one who does the will of our Creator who is in heaven. So it's not about just saying, oh, we believe, we believe. It's who does what God wants us to do. In Matthew 7, anyway, according to Jesus. And then again, Luke chapter 6, according to Jesus, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They're like someone who builds a house and dug down very deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood came and the torrent struck, that house could not be shaken because it was well built. But those who hear my words and do not put them into practice are like those who build a house on the ground without a foundation. And the moment the torrent strikes the house, it collapses and the destruction is complete. See, in this story, the parable, as it's given to us, the, the, the most telling words are near the end, when the five foolish ones that made no preparation for what might happen. They come and they want in. And Jesus looks at them and says, I never knew you. Which has got to be scary. I'm suggesting that biblically, the way to be known by Jesus and to know Jesus is to actually do what he said to do and not just memorize some good words or things that other people believe and try to make that your own, but to actually live the way he taught us to live. That is how to be known by Jesus. And so what does it mean to live the way Jesus taught? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> because for the next couple of Sundays, the readings that we will have to explore really hone in on the things that Jesus thought were important for us to do and how to live. I'll give you a, a Cliff Notes sort of heads up teaser to whet your appetite. If we're going to live as Jesus wants us to live and taught us to live, that means to live freely and not to be afraid. And by freely, I mean, I, I, I'll rely on the wisdom of Carl Jung here, who talked about becoming individuated, which just means being in touch with the good parts and the bad parts of me and being aware of that and minimizing the bad parts and accentuating the good parts so that when you and I enter relationship, I'm bringing the best of me into that and I'm trying to leave as much baggage behind as I can and not impose that on you. 
That's what I mean by living freely. I think living freely means being generous with my time, with my emotions, with my money. Living in gratitude that God's grace has come to us all and all are accepted and loved by this holy other. I believe living as Jesus taught means that we accept others just as they are, not trying to make them into little versions of me or what I think they should be like. It means accepting them for who they are from my heart. And I think the key thing about living as Jesus taught folks to live and teaches us to live is to be liberated from just trusting myself, my own ideas and my own opinions, and mistrusting what you think. Mistrusting everybody else. To think, I'm the only one they know. See, many of us in this day and age, with all that's going on in the world, live in fear. Will there be enough? Will I have enough? I got to take care of this. I got to do this. I got to, got to, got and we, and, and we allow that fear that only I know what's best for me. Only I know what's right. And we mistrust what everybody else has to say or think. I would suggest that's not living in freedom. Uh, as this parable concludes, there are those that want into the banquet and those that don't get to come in. And, and, and preachers like myself have used stories like this in the whole context of Matthew 23, 24, and 25 to scare people. There's a heaven, and if you don't believe right, you're not going to get in, and you're going to be stuck out with the wailing and gnashing of teeth, and you better believe like we do, or you're out. And I suggest that it's done great damage to the Christian gospel message. In fact, one of the great proponents of that kind of theory is relatively new in the life of Christianity. 1830, there was an Irish preacher named John Nelson Darby who concocted the theory of the rapture and the tribulation at the end of times. And he just started preaching this, that uh, at the end... Jesus is going to sneak in and take away all the people that believe correctly and then all hell is going to unleash on the planet to knock all the people still left behind, all the dunderheads still here, to knock them up the side of the head so that they believe correctly and then he'll come back and take everybody to be to heaven. So this... I, you may have seen the Left Behind movies or read books like that. This is very part in the Christian water of today, but I have to tell you, it all was concocted in 1830. So for the first 1800 years of Christianity, nobody taught that or thought that or believed that. So it's relevant. And, and it really is an escapist mentality to think, you know, we'll get out of all the trouble. And I can amass big crowds and get a lot of money if I can convince you that all hell is going to break loose and I'm the only one that knows how you can escape that. So you better come listen to me and I'll give you the secrets. And, and I'm not going to suggest 
that the folks that proclaim that particular version of the message are nefarious or have evil intention. I think they're just trying to get people to straighten up and fly right according to how they think people should straighten up and fly right, as if they're the arbiters of what straighten up and fly right is. But at any rate. But I think there's other ways to read this story. And, and, and so here's what I'm going to suggest. I'm going to suggest that if we live as Jesus taught and that we get liberated from these fears that only I know what to do and I mistrust everybody else, that then we'll get into the banquet party. And the banquet party isn't just in the suite by and by. It can be here right now. A couple of weeks ago, I was invited over at SOU to give a lecture on the flourishing life, and I'll give you the, 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 the bottom line I got to. The bottom line, for me, of the flourishing life, it all boils down to what we do with and for others. Now, I didn't invent that. I just took the teachings of Jesus and tried to say it in unreligious words so the students over at SOU could hear it. I didn't create that. It's just, it's what we do with and for others. So as, as Nancy taught the children this morning, how do we prepare? What's the best way to prepare? Well, the best way to prepare is invest in relationships, to give my heart to others in relationship, to receive from others. Because the look, I, in my work as a hospice chaplain, the reality is there's going to come a time where we're all going to need caregivers. We're all going to need people to want to help take care of us. And if I don't invest in those relationships now, when that time comes, I'm going to be in a world of hurt. So if I'm going to prepare investing in relationships, and I believe that's exactly what Jesus taught, invest in the relationships now because you're going to need them and not only will you need them later, they're what make life sing now. Don't get caught up in trying to make money and a career and degrees and a reputation. It's a fool's game. Invest in the lives of other human beings that will love you and that you can love. That's where the music is. That's where the dance is. That's where the joy is. That's living if we're going to follow the teachings of Jesus. And so I suggest that's what this parable is about. Be wise. Prepare for the eventualities that may or may not come. And we do that by bringing all of ourselves into relationship with others in a loving way, in a kind way, in an accepting way, just as Jesus lived. It is to model our lives on his behavior. That's what it means to me to be a Christian. Not so much what I may or may not believe intellectually, but how am I living? Because I want to hear, oh, I knew you. You did just like I would have done. That's what I want to hear. And so when I read this story, these are the things that I hear and that speak to me. And I will pray that the Holy One who inspires us all will open your ears and hearts to hear what it says to you.
and how you might want to live, to be a follower of Jesus, preparing for whatever lies ahead for all of us. Amen.